Okay, good evening. Um, Continuing this evening with our series in Systematic Theology. It's been a while since we've been here and listened to the Systematic Theology series. We're up to session 40 now. And in this part of the series, we're looking at redemption. What redemption is, is God acting to choose a people for himself, God working to accomplish redemption, and then God working to apply redemption to his elect people. And those are the people that he chose in eternity past to be redeemed. The accomplishment of redemption, well, that was finished 2,000 years ago with Jesus' perfect earthly walk, his work on the cross, and the resurrection. But today, God is continuing to apply redemption to those who he elected to salvation. That divine work of applying redemption is what we're continuing to look at in this section. Now, beginning back in session 37, we started looking at the orderly way in which God applies redemption to his people. And theologians have a phrase for this order, and that phrase is the ordo salutis, which is just Latin for the order of salvation. The ordo salutis is a recognition that certain benefits of salvation have to come first before we receive other benefits. God applies some of these benefits at the same moment in time, but there still is what could be considered a logical order to how they're applied. And in your notes, you'll see this order again as a reminder. You start with step zero election that goes to 1A and 1B, effectual call and regeneration. Then what I have here listed is 2A and 2B, repentance unto life, faith in Jesus Christ. And what I have listed is 3A, 3B, and 3C, justification, definitive sanctification, and adoption. And then 4A and 4B, Progressive sanctification and perseverance and holiness, and we'll get to each of these um, in, in due time. We started looking at each of these salvation benefits that God applies to his people one by one. And we've already looked at election. And then we looked at the effectual call and how that works hand in hand with the call of the gospel that goes out to the world. The universal call of the gospel is an announcement. The gospel is that specific announcement of redemption from sin and death in Jesus Christ, promised in history and fulfilled in history. The gospel announcement is a royal declaration proclaimed by the church, and the announcement is a widespread offer to be redeemed from sin and death by the finished work of Christ. In fact, not only is the gospel announcement an invitation It comes with an embedded command. That command is to believe the gospel so that we may call upon the Lord and be saved. The church proclaims the gospel, this royal announcement to everyone without distinction because we don't know who God elected in eternity. We don't walk around with signs on our forehead saying elect or non-elect. We're simply commanded by Christ to preach the gospel to all of creation, to all of humanity. But... Not everyone who hears the gospel ends up being saved. I'll read, first of all, tonight from 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, which tells us why. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Paul here is making several points about the natural person, a person who is still in Adam, the way that we're all born. First, 
the natural person does not accept or receive the things of the Spirit of God. His will is shaped by his sin nature, and his will is captive to sin. He can't accept the things of the Spirit of God because his will is incapable of desiring spiritual things. His will is captive to sin, and his will has no capacity for delighting in what is eternal. The Gospel of John, chapter 3, which is where we'll be next, it reveals a sharp distinction between those who believe the gospel and those who refuse to believe. And I'll read from a, a familiar passage. John chapter 3, verses 16 to 21. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment, that light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. This is the judgment, that light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. There's a clear division to the coming of the Son into the world. Verse 21 describes those whom God saves. Their will is changed, and they come to the light. Verses 19 and 20 describe most of the world. Those with the old nature, the way we were all born, love darkness and hate the light because they love works of darkness and hate the exposure of their works for what they are. In previous sessions, we learned about the doctrine of total depravity. In the state we were at our first birth when we were born, the way we came into the world, in Adam, we could do nothing that pleased God or earned salvation. In fact, we couldn't even desire or will to do so. Our wills were captive to sin. Nobody held a gun to our heads and forced us to live in darkness. Before salvation, we willingly loved darkness rather than the light. So first, the natural man is not capable of receiving the things of God. Second, the reason for this is because the things of the Spirit are folly to him. In the sin nature, the way we were born, spiritual things, where they were just foolish in our judgment. Third, he cannot even understand these things because he's not equipped to understand them. Things, these are things that are spiritually discerned. One can't even properly examine these things in our natural state because he lacks the spiritual equipping to examine them. He cannot properly judge what God is doing in the world. He sees only the surface. He doesn't see what's happening from the viewpoint of the truth. Before our salvation, because of our sin, the things of God were folly to us. We considered it all just so much nonsense. All the things of God were like a, a foreign culture to us. Can you imagine what it would be like to be suddenly transported, instantly and unexpectedly, 
to say Borneo or someplace, another country on the other side of the world, with a language and a culture completely unfamiliar to you. That was what the culture of the kingdom of heaven was to us before we were saved. Completely and utterly foreign. So in a previous session, we covered the universal call, the widespread announcement that the church proclaims of the good news of the gospel. Those who hear are commanded to obey the gospel by believing the gospel. But since those who are unsaved cannot even understand spiritual things and consider the things of the spirit to be folly, how can a person ever accept the gospel and call upon the Lord to save them? The only way is by means of the effectual call. The effectual call. And we covered that at our previous session. The effectual call is granted by God to the elect. The gospel announcement is an outward call going to all of creation, but the effectual call goes only to the elect. The effectual inward call of God works together with the outward call of the gospel. The effectual call, it's not disconnected from the announcement of the gospel. They go hand in hand. Why is the effectual call effective? The effectual call is effective because it comes with the gracious power to make it effectual. That power is the work of the Holy Spirit causing the called person to be born again. Theologians call the new birth regeneration. Regeneration. So let's look again at the list of benefits of applied redemption in the Ordo Salutis. And that list is in the handout notes again tonight to remind everyone of those benefits and how they're applied. If you look at where effectual call and regeneration are in the list, you'll see that they're numbered 1A and 1B. And the, what's the reason for that A and B thing? Well, it's because they go together at the same moment in time. They're really part of the same action of God. In fact, theologians are kind of split on whether the effectual call is really any different than regeneration. And some theologians just say, well, they're just different words for the same action of God. I'm presenting them as separate topics because they are really two sides of the same coin. The internal call of God, the effectual call, is effective because God also gives the new birth to the elect person at the same time. The scriptures describe the core of our nature as our heart our heart. In our natural state, sin dominated our heart. We were in slavery to sin. In our natural state, sin corrupted our hearts. It dominated and corrupted three categories of what makes up our hearts. Our minds, our wills, and our affections. Our minds, our wills, and our affections. Our minds were corrupted by sin, so we were not able to think according to truth. Our wills were corrupted by sin so that we were not able to will to do anything pleasing to God. Our affections were corrupted by sin, so we failed to love righteousness and instead loved unrighteousness. In our unsafe state, even though we didn't realize it, we were in a desperate state. Any human effort to change our hearts would end up in failure. The next passage that I'll read from be in the book of Job, chapter 14. Here Job is speaking of the hopeless situation 
of the natural man before a holy God. I'll be in Job chapter 14, verses 1 to 4. Man who is born of a woman is few of days and full of trouble. He comes out like a flower and withers. He flees like a shadow and continues not. And do you open your eyes on such a one and bring me into judgment with you? Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? There is not one. Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? There is not one. Another place in scripture that tells us the ugly truth about the natural man is Jeremiah chapter 13, verse 23. Jeremiah 13, 23. Now here in this section, God's people, Judah, are being told of the judgment against them. The reason is because their idolatry had made evil a constant feature of their lives. Their wickedness had become deep-seated. Because of this, the Lord would judge them with exile. And I'll read from Jeremiah chapter 13, verse 23. Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then also you can do good who are accustomed to evil. If Judah were to ask why, why is this exile coming? God answers with two rhetorical questions. Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? The obvious answer is no. In the same way, there is no way available by our own efforts to change our own nature. We need a new heart. If we are to gain the benefits of the order of salvation, it all has to start with a complete rebirth of our nature. And we can't do this action of gaining a new heart ourselves. It's not like making a New Year's resolution or I'm going to turn over a new leaf or reading a popular book that promises a program of self-improvement. Not going to get it by watching Oprah on TV. Like I said in our last session, our old nature, it's like those houses on, if you remember the the old, uh, from a few years ago, the extreme makeover shows where the house won't be fixed by halfway measures. It needs a lot more than a new coat of paint. And those extreme makeover shows that they did was they tore the entire house down, laid a new foundation, and built it up from the new foundation. Only God can do this work of complete internal change, of making a new creation. In Psalm 51, David is praying a prayer of heartfelt repentance after being confronted by Nathan the prophet over his sin with Bathsheba. One of David's petitions before the Lord is in verse 10, Psalm 51:10. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. David is asking the Lord to address the great need of David, a need that only God can answer. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Only God can do the divine work of creation and recreation is what is necessary for David and for each of us. David could not do this recreation by his own power and neither can we. Matthew Henry stated it like this, only he that made the heart can new make it. And to his power, nothing is impossible. He created the world 
by the word of his power as the God of nature, and it is by the word of his power as the God of grace that we are clean, that we are sanctified. In previous sessions, we began looking at what are often called the five points of Calvinism, which people memorize with the acronym TULIP. And the T in TULIP stands for total depravity, which means we cannot do anything to merit salvation, and we cannot do anything to save ourselves. Total depravity affects the totality of our hearts. Our minds, our wills, and our affections. This is why the first steps in the order of salvation, the ordo salutis, must be done by God alone. God must be the one who elected us in eternity past. That's step zero in the list. God alone must issue the summons to us in the effectual call. And God alone must give the power to respond to that summons by recreating us, giving us a new heart. This divine work of recreating the heart, what we call the new birth, is also called regeneration. Okay, what exactly is regeneration? I like how the theologian Gerhardus Voss defines it. He defines it as an immediate recreation of the sinful nature by God the Holy Spirit and an implanting into the body of Christ. An immediate recreation of the sinful nature by God the Holy Spirit and an implanting into the body of Christ. Let's let's break this down a little bit into bite-sized pieces. First of all, regeneration is immediate. In other words, God does the work of the new birth directly without using any other means. We don't help God in this. We're completely passive in the process. The new birth does not rely on God wooing us and persuading us so that we become convinced. There's no human effort that I could do to prepare for the new birth or to assist God in giving the new birth. I was spiritually dead. I couldn't do anything to gain merit. The next part of the definition is that regeneration or the new birth is a recreation. A recreation. Just as God created the heavens and the earth in six days from nothing, when a person is born again, God makes a new creation. And therefore, we have a new nature. I'll read from Ezekiel chapter 11 next. Ezekiel chapter 11. To show the profound nature of the new birth. These words from the Lord were words of promise and hope in the midst of words of judgment. I'll read from Ezekiel 11, verses 17 to 20. Therefore say, thus says the Lord God, I will gather you from the peoples and assemble you out of the countries where you, where you have been scattered, and I will give you the land of Israel. And when they come there, they will remove from it all its detestable things and all its abominations. And I will give them one heart, And a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. That they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. When the Holy Spirit causes us to be born again, we are recreated. 
A new nature is created in us. When God recreates our heart, our mind comes from darkness to light. Our will is reversed and our affections begin to be purified. This recreation profoundly changes our mind, our will, and our affections. This prophecy that we just read in Ezekiel tells of a removal and replacement process. God would remove their heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh. Our mind, our will, and our affections all come from a single source, which the scriptures call our heart. Of course, this isn't the physical organ of the heart, but it's the core of our nature, the core of our being. These three streams, the mind, the will, and the affections, are all streams that flow from a single source, the heart. I'll read from Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23. It's probably a familiar verse for many of you. Proverbs 4.23. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. From the heart flow the springs of life. There is a single source, which the scripture calls the heart, which is the center of our being and nature, from which flow our thoughts and actions. Our mind, or our thoughts, our will, and our affections all flow from this source. What happens to a stream of water if the source is polluted? You know, I remember back the big Northridge earthquake afterwards, if you still had a water supply coming out of your faucet, they warned you, boil your water because it is contaminated or likely to be contaminated. The source was contaminated. If you depend for your water on a particular stream, but there's an environmental accident upstream and the source is polluted, what happens to the downstream stream? The entire stream's polluted. Like this, because the heart of the unsaved person is polluted and corrupt. The streams that come from the heart, the mind, the will, and the affections are polluted and corrupt. Jesus spoke of the polluted effects of a polluted heart in Matthew 15, verses 19 and 20. Matthew 15, 19 and 20. And he said this, For out of the heart come evil thoughts, Murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. But when God does the divine work of recreation, he removes the polluted source, the corrupt heart, and replaces it with a new heart and a new spirit. The clean source changes everything downstream. There is a reversal of our mind, will, and affections. How we think is profoundly changed. Our will is profoundly changed. Our affections or what we love are profoundly changed. The next part of the definition of regeneration is that this action is done by God the Holy Spirit. The divine person of the Holy Spirit is the source of the new birth and the one who does the work of recreating us. 
I'm going to go back to that passage in Ezekiel chapter 11, verse 19, where it said, And I will give them one heart, and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give, the, from, and give them a heart of flesh. The word of hope is that God will do the work of divine surgery. God will remove the heart of stone and then replace it with a heart of flesh. This is what we call a monergistic work. Monergistic work. That word monergistic is made up of the words mono meaning one and ergon meaning work. Monergistic means a work that's done alone without help from another. God does this work of the new birth monergistically. He does it alone. God does not rely in any way on our mind, will, or affections to do the work. In fact, our mind, will, and affections, they were the problem. The work has to be monergistic because we only have our sin and corruption to offer. So in Ezekiel chapter 11, God gave the prophecy and hope that he alone will do the divine surgery that is needed to provide a new heart. But you know, we might be puzzled by another passage in Ezekiel, which you might think, you might think that it says that, we're, that somehow we're responsible for changing our own heart. And that passage is in Ezekiel chapter 18, if you'd like to turn there next. Ezekiel chapter 18, verses 19 to 32. And as I read this, we can focus on verse 31. I'll start in verse 29. Yet the house of Israel says, the way of the Lord is not just. O house of Israel, are my ways not just? Is it not your ways that are not just? Therefore, I will judge you, O house of Israel. Everyone according to his ways, declares the Lord God, repent and turn from all your transgressions, lest iniquity be your ruin. Then we get to verse 31. Cast away from you all the transgressions that you have committed and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God. So turn and live. Make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Does this verse somehow cancel out the passage back in chapter 11 saying the Lord will do the work of making a new heart and a new spirit? No, there's no contradiction here. When God commanded his people to make themselves a new heart and a new spirit, he was commanding what they ought to do, but not what they could do. A new heart is a command of God, but we can't supply that for ourselves. And before conversion, we have no desire or will to do so. But God comes in with the gracious promise that he will provide what he commands. He will provide what he commands. When the people heard the command to make themselves a new heart, this should have driven them in desperation to the promise that God would supply what he was commanding. When God's people put the command together with the promise, then we can say what the writer of Lamentations says in Lamentations 5.21, Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. The Lord must do the restoring, 
or we will not be restored to him. There's another important passage that I want to point to that emphasizes the source of the new birth. That source, once again, it's not in ourselves, but in the power of God. The first passage that many of you might think of when we talk about being born again is in the Gospel of John, chapter 3. And this is the occasion when Nicodemus came to Jesus at night, and Jesus spoke to Nicodemus of the new birth. If you'd like to follow along, I'll be reading from John chapter 3, verses 1 to 15. In this passage, Jesus emphasizes the absolute necessity of the new birth for salvation. And we also see the source of the new birth. John chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So, is it, so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of of man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Jesus made it clear that unless a person is born again, he cannot see or enter the kingdom of God. The new birth is absolutely required as the entry gate to the rest of the order of salvation. The Greek word translated again in the phrase born again can also be translated from above, making the phrase born from above. In fact, that same Greek word is translated both ways in the New Testament depending on the context where you find it. Both are within what we call the semantic range of the word. The word could either mean again or from above. We have to look at context to conclude which one it means. If you're reading along from the ESV translation, you might see a note in the text here that says that the Greek here is ambiguous because it could have either meaning. I tend to think that the Greek word was chosen on purpose because it could mean born again or born from above. And here, both senses are true. Our new birth is not something that is earthly, 
but the source is from above, not from the power or will of man, but the source is the will and power of God. Let's turn a couple of chapters back to the Gospel of John, chapter 1. John, chapter 1, we'll read verses 12 and 13. This passage tells us what the source of our new birth is. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. In this passage, John speaks of the new birth in terms of its source. Natural birth involves the flesh and the will of man. The new birth has nothing to do with man as the source. The source is of God. The Greek word used to record Jesus' interaction with Nicodemus is deliberately ambiguous. It can mean born from above, and it's absolutely true that the Christian is born from above. The source of this new birth is a source that is above, not from below. In Jesus' interaction with Nicodemus, the Greek word for born again is ambiguous, and I think it was ambiguous on purpose. I think it has a double application. Born again and born from above. Now we'll turn to another passage, and this time it's in 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter also has a Greek word that is translated born again. And I'll read from 1 Peter 1, verses 3 to 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this passage, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, a different Greek word is used. And that's, that, that Greek word is not ambiguous. It just means born again. So when we look at Jesus' interaction with Nicodemus, we can see that both senses of the Greek word that are used there are true. We're born from above. The source of our new birth is from above. But it's also true that we're born again in a spiritual rebirth. And then here in verse 3 in, in 1 Peter, Peter states that it is God who is the source of the new birth. He has caused us to be born again. Another passage that shows the source of the new birth is a few verses later. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 22 to 25. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Now in this passage, the Greek word 
that can only mean born again is used. It's not ambiguous here. It just means born again. But in this passage, we can see both aspects of the new birth. Peter is encouraging believers to live in a Christ-like manner because they have been born again. Peter writes that our new birth is not of perishable seed, but of imperishable seed. The source of our new birth, it's not from below, it's not from the flesh. Therefore, our manner of life that comes from the new birth needs to reflect that source, the source that is above. So the source of the new birth is from above. In Jesus' interaction with Nicodemus, the conversation that comes to us uses a Greek word that I believe is deliberately ambiguous, meaning both born again and born from above. And 1 Peter tells us that God has caused us to be born again and that this new birth does not have a source in this world. The source is God. So we've seen the source of the new birth. And now let's look at the power exercised in our new birth. The power exercised in our new birth. God's divine work of regeneration demonstrates his great power. I've been impressed with the power and majesty of God just when I see the images from the latest telescope that was launched, the James Webb Telescope. I don't know if you've seen the pictures that have come from the James Webb Telescope that they launched recently. And once I see the images of not just an unimaginable number of stars and their beauty, but an uncountable number of entire galaxies and the scale of the universe, my mind goes into overload on that. All any of us can do is marvel at the power of God being displayed in the power of creation, the, the wondrous work of creation. But the divine work that displays the greatest power of God is the work of the new birth. If you'd like to follow along, I'll be in Ephesians chapter 1. In Ephesians chapter 1, Paul is telling them how he prays for them. Paul prays that in their heart they would perceive and grasp and appreciate how they have benefited from God's work in them. One of the things that Paul prayed is that they would, that they would perceive is the display of immense divine power in their salvation. I'll read from Ephesians chapter 1, verses 18 to 21. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Paul is considering the greatness of divine power, the display of God's strong arm, so to speak, in our salvation. How do we wrap this concept of such divine power with human language? Paul is stretching human language to its limits and trying to convey the idea to the Ephesians. Paul writes of God using his divine power, not just a taste of divine power, but the immeasurable greatness of his power. 
The word we see translated greatness is the Greek word megathos. Just the mega part of that word kind of gives you a sense of the greatness of God's power that we're talking about. But that word, just that word alone, doesn't capture what Paul wants the Ephesians to perceive. He adds another word that we see translated as immeasurable. God's power displayed in salvation is not just megathos, not just greatness, but immeasurable greatness. And that word immeasurable is a translation of a Greek word that means to exceed the scale of measurement. The degree of the megathos or greatness of God's power in regenerating us pegs the meter, so to speak. But Paul isn't satisfied even with this. He stretches the limits of language further. This immeasurable greatness of divine power is according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. The immeasurable greatness of divine power displayed in our regeneration is according to the working of his great might that he worked in the resurrection of Christ. Paul here is deploying human language to its limits. This is the mightiest strength possible on display. God works with his great might in regenerating a sinner. The same great might on display in the resurrection of Christ. As great as those images from the James Webb telescope are, as unimaginable as the scale of God's creation is, the real display of the immeasurable megathos, the greatness of divine power that pegs the meter, is the working of God's great might in regeneration and salvation. Now that we've looked at the source of regeneration and the divine power that causes regeneration, we'll look now at an error that is out there about the new birth. This error is that God uses some physical action of ours to cause the new birth. A few minutes ago, I quoted Gerhardus Voss on the definition of regeneration. A part of that definition is that the new birth, regeneration, is immediate. In other words, God the Holy Spirit does not use any intermediate means to recreate us. We were no help. In our old state, we wouldn't have wanted to help, and we couldn't have helped the Holy Spirit even if we wanted to. Once again, the work of the new birth is monergistic. God works alone in the new birth. We were completely passive. This is so important because there are incorrect doctrines out there that state that God uses tools or means to recreate us, things that we have to do to make regeneration happen. The Roman Catholic Church ties regeneration to baptism. They state that the specific grace given by baptism produces a regeneration, a rebirth within the one baptized. This is a form of what is called baptismal regeneration. Baptismal regeneration. That doctrine, baptismal regeneration, has a long history. It's the view that God uses baptism as a means or an instrument to produce regeneration. The reformers rightly rejected this view. Instead, baptism is a physical sign of the promise of cleansing accomplished by Christ. 
It is a sign for all to see of what Christ has already done in recreating the heart of the person being baptized. The act of baptism is not a means to regeneration. If God used baptism as a means to regenerate a person, well, that would contradict other passages that teach that we're saved by faith alone. One of these passages is Romans chapter 10, verses 8 to 10. I'll read from there. Romans 10, verses 8 to 10. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. And the error of baptismal regeneration also runs up against the narrative of how certain people in the New Testament were converted. One of those people, of course, is the example of the thief on the cross. There wasn't a whole lot of time that the thief on the cross had to be baptized. But I want to bring up another example, and that's the example of Lydia in the book of Acts. And I'll be in Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16. And I'll read verses 13 to 15. <clears throat> Here, Paul and his apostolic team receive the call from the Holy Spirit to go to Macedonia. They come to Philippi, and on the Sabbath, they go to the riverside where they thought they would find a place of prayer because there was apparently no synagogue in the city. They preached the gospel there, and one of the people who heard was Lydia. I'll read from Acts 16, verses 13 to 15. <clears throat> and on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. And notice the order and how the Lord changed Lydia when she heard the gospel. She heard what Paul was saying. Then the Lord opened her heart. Notice it was the work of the Lord to open Lydia's heart. Many people heard Paul's proclamation of the gospel in the course of his ministry, but it was only when the Lord did the monergistic work of opening the heart, the work by the Lord alone of regeneration the recreation of the heart, that the rest of the Ordo Salutis takes place. It's obvious that Lydia was regenerated at that point when the Lord opened her heart. Then Lydia paid attention to what was said by Paul. Lydia believed the gospel as a result of regeneration. She gave close attention to the gospel. I like how the New American Standard translates it. It says, and the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. Because the Lord recreated her heart, it can be said that the Lord opened her heart. And only then could she respond to the gospel. 
Only then, after Lydia heard the gospel, only after the Lord regenerated her and opened her heart, and only after, as a result, she paid attention to the gospel and believed, only then do we finally get to verse 15. Only after regeneration and saving faith was Lydia baptized. Baptismal regeneration cannot be true. Lydia was regenerated before her baptism. There's two reasons why I spent some time refuting baptismal regeneration. First, it's very important to realize that regeneration is a monergistic work. It is God alone who does the work. We don't help God or cooperate with God in the new birth. It is God alone who recreates the heart, taking away the heart of stone and replacing it with a heart of flesh. We don't do part of God's work of regeneration by a physical act of baptism. The second reason why I'm spending time on refuting baptismal regeneration is that there's a number of Protestant churches that are, in a sense, kind of joining Roman Catholic churches in teaching baptismal regeneration. There are offshoots of Protestantism, and even among those who consider themselves Reformed, who believe that the physical act of baptism confers regeneration and all the rest of the benefits of Christ, at least temporarily. It's almost like they consider the act of baptism to be like magic. It would take too much time to explain the belief system of these offshoots, but I wanted to alert you to this, to the fact that there are Protestant flavors of this Roman Catholic teaching on baptismal regeneration. When God the Holy Spirit regenerates an elect person, he removes the heart of stone and replaces it with a heart of flesh. We looked before at the fact that the scriptures speak of the heart as the source of the streams of what flows from our lives. If the heart as the source of the streams is polluted, as it was when we were born the first time, all the streams that come from the polluted source are also polluted. When we were born again, God replaced the heart the source, with a new heart, a new nature. We would then expect the streams that flow from this new source to be changed. In the next three sessions, I want to take a look at what I see as the three categories of streams that come from our hearts. Those categories are the mind, the will, and the affections. The mind, the will, and the affections. In the new birth, since our heart, the source, is replaced... Our minds are changed, our wills are changed, and our affections, what we love, are changed. In the next sessions, we'll look at how each of those things are changed by the new birth. But before we wrap up, there's a couple things I want to mention. First, if regeneration changes our heart, and therefore our mind, will, and affections, why do Christians still sin? This is because regeneration gives us the moral foundation for change. Burkhoff, the theologian Burkhoff, gives a somewhat differently worded definition of regeneration than the one we already looked at from Gerhardus Voss. And here's how Burkhoff words it. Regeneration is, the <clears throat> regeneration is that act of God by which the principle of the new life is implanted in man and the governing disposition of the soul 
is made holy. We are delivered from the dominion and slavery of sin. The principle of the new life is implanted in us. Our governing disposition is made holy. This is foundational to what comes next for as long as we're in this world. God chooses, while we live in this present age and while we live in this world, to not completely deliver us all at once from the weakness of all remaining sin. In the wisdom of God, he enlists us in a daily battle, a striving to live according to the spirit and not according to the flesh. The new birth begins a process of maturing in Christ-likeness. The Heidelberg Catechism says this about that daily striving. The catechism question is this, but can those who are converted to God perfectly keep these commandments? The catechism answer is no, but even the holiest men, while in this life, have only a small beginning of this obedience. Yet so, that with a sincere resolution, they begin to live not only according to some, but all the commandments of God. If it wasn't for the new birth, there wouldn't even be a battle or striving. Our unredeemed minds, wills, and affections, they just continue in our sins. And there would be no striving against the flesh. Regeneration leads to a later step in the Ordo Salutis, sanctification, which is a work of God's grace within us. And we'll get to that step later on. Paul wrote of this ongoing striving in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1, where it says this. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. The new birth has fundamentally changed the very foundation of our lives. And now God, by his grace, is working in us to gradually change us away from every defilement of body and spirit. And this battle drives us to prayer drives us to study of the scriptures and reliance on God and his power and grace. And then the second thing I want to mention as we wrap up is what some of you might be asking yourselves if you've been saved since you were young. You know, many Christians can point to a powerful experience of their own conversion, a sudden awakening from darkness to light that they still remember. And you know, they, perhaps they write down the date and time in their Bibles I have my own story of suddenly and consciously going from darkness to light. It's an experience I still remember. But maybe some of you were saved at a young age. And as you hear about the powerful move of God in regeneration, you might be concerned if you can't remember the day this happened to you. There might be some here this evening who were raised in a Christian home. And they were taught the gospel from their earliest memory. And if that's true for you, you may not even remember a time that you didn't believe the gospel. Even if you can't point to a date and time, if you believe, then the Holy Spirit did the work of the new birth in you, or you could not believe. Some genuine Christians, they become anxious because they, they don't have what many call a testimony of a, of a direct, this dramatic turn from darkness to light. And I've heard tremendous testimonies bring tears to my eyes of the sudden change from darkness to light. Tremendous stories. But you know what? Even if you don't have a date that you wrote into your Bible, it's the date of your salvation. 
The question is not whether you have a testimony that measures up to another's testimony. The question to ask yourself is, do I believe the gospel? Do I rest on the finished work of Christ alone? The only way that you can truthfully answer yes to that question is if the Holy Spirit at some point applied the work of the new birth to you and issued to you the summons of the effectual call.